start with a couple personal things. I've been uh, running still, going three times a week, and I'm not going to lie, it hasn't been that enjoyable. It's kind of hard to run slow. It's kind of hard to run fast. Uh, that quarter mile at the five and a half to six minute mile pace, I do it every time, but I thought by now, after like six or seven times, it'd be a breeze. Still hard, still out of breath, still really hurts that last 100, 150 meters of going at that pace. And so I'm going to stick with it. I think a lot of things are uncomfortable and you don't like them and you dread them. And then after a while, you have to stop. You should stop actually. But for me, I'm not there yet. I'm just in the get through the early rough part and see, uh, see if it gets easier and see if you start to enjoy it more. But the whole thing, you know, I, I have to take the Metro subway to the college and like the stop that you got to get off at. There's one working turnstile out of like six and there's like a hundred people trying to get through that turnstile and you got to use your card to get out. So it's like, has a delay every second each person goes. It's just super annoying stuff like that. Standing there for five minutes, just like waiting for each person to go through. Like, oh, we don't give a shit about your time. You know, it's Portugal. Who cares? Who cares if you have to wait here at the, inside the subway sitting there? So I don't know. I'm just getting irritable about things. I've just been irritable lately in general. I don't know if it's some biochemical thing going on with my brain or um, I did quit coffee, by the way, for October. I don't know if I'll extend it beyond October, but I don't really miss it. I like the taste when I'm fasting, especially it's good, but I'm doing that experiment. Maybe that has something to do with it, but I stopped October 1st and it's October 13th. So it shouldn't still be an issue. But anyway, I've been a bit irritable. A lot of things going on in the world. Maybe you're irritating me. That could be part of it. I read this interesting substack by Robert Malone and he was talking about Twitter as a weapon, not just a social media, but as a information weapon. And I've always kind of thought that in one way, like, okay, there's like sort of the narrative that's being purveyed, that's trying to influence people, trying to you know, get the agenda passed of certain powerful people. And then there's everybody else who has some measure of influence and you're trying to sort of you know, defend, defend yourself against this narrative that is pernicious, that is going to be harmful to you and people like you. And I don't know. I thought of it as a battle, but he, he was more like, you know, everybody knows that corporations and governments mine those social media posts for information about you to sell to you or to be worried about you or whatever. I mean, it's obvious. I think we all know when we're posting on those things that it's not just our followers that are looking at it. It's potentially anybody, an employer, government, whoever. There's that. But he also felt like it was a psyop, like they can mute your voice, shadow ban you, and they can augment certain things to get you annoyed. And I do think we have to be careful and guard the gateway of our attention. I've talked about this before because your mind can be hacked. Your brain uh, takes in information the way your body takes in food. And if you're eating seed oils and crappy food, you'll get sick. And if you're taking in bad information or information that's sort of calculated based on your profile to rile you up or get you going or make you irritable. It can be damaging, right? Stress has physical effects, cancer and heart disease. Stress is a huge factor. And can, could they amplify stress if they wanted to? Are they that clever? I don't know. I was thinking actually that we should assume our adversaries are clever uh, rather than stupid. Uh, and if they're stupid, then there's nothing to worry about, but assume that they're clever and what, what would you do if you were trying to sow discord and push an agenda where, wherein you had more control over the population, where the population was more submissive? I, mean, I think a couple of things I would do if I were, you know, the national security state, 
somebody working on behalf of powerful factions that wanted the population to be more or less controlled if and when the financial bubble pops, which it looks like it. I mean, I would try to be tricky about this. I would plan a lot of little, I guess, Easter eggs for people to find and think they were a big deal that were fake. I would plant like really, really negative news about the vaccine that turned out to be fake so that people would all glom onto it and say, this is, oh my God, like, look at this. It's, it killed everybody or something. And then show that get debunked later. And then everyone would say, see, you fell for that conspiracy theory. I would plant something like QAnon and then have people get caught up in it and then see, see, you fell for QAnon. You're a QAnon person. I would do all sorts of ops if I were a soulless, craven oligarch or you know, or working for one that my only goal was to divide people and make them scared and, and submissive to power and have them turn on their fellow citizen. I, I would do stuff like that. I, I would like have a lot of fake things that sounded plausible. So I always, I read a lot of things that are, I, I really have to vet things carefully because I, I feel like some of them, some of the more outrageous claims, I'll, I'll look at these outrageous claims. And again, I'm not saying they're false, this 5G stuff and all this crazy stuff. I'm not saying they're false because I don't know for a fact they're false, but I'll think I'll, I'll watch a video or I'll listen to somebody and I'll, I'll say, you know, she really seems to believe this and she has some basis for saying this. And I think, okay, maybe I'm not going to just believe it because I was told it, but then I think if my adversary were clever, he would plant certain true things about that that would make people sincerely attached to it and then promulgate it, and then everyone roll their eyes and be like, all this stuff's bullshit. Vaccine's safe and effective. This 5G shit, come on. You got to be kidding me with this. I would have things like that. You, you want that if you're pushing an agenda. You want absurd straw man versions of the critique of you, and then you can just attack the straw man. Say, oh yeah, really, Bill Gates putting a chip in you? Now, I don't think that they wouldn't put a chip in you. I mean, we put a chip on our dog. Poor Oscar's got a chip in him. Don't think that the powerful factions of the world see you as you know, much more valuable than dog. I mean, I think they would if they could. Are they? I don't know. I'm not assuming they have yet. But all these things to me are not, you know, they would do it. It's, it's never because they're, that's too evil. They would never do that. That is never the reason they don't do it. It would be because they can't execute it or they could execute it, but they think they would get caught if they did. Those are the reasons why they don't do certain things, why certain things aren't true. It's never, they wouldn't do that. They would draw the line. That is never the reason that these crazy things are not true. Maybe it's, it's that this is not possible to do. It's not technologically possible to do these things. That would be another reason why they're not doing the more outlandish stuff that people say they're doing. But anyway, I was just thinking about Twitter as sort of a, uh, a weapon, as Robert Malone suggested. And I was thinking I should quit Twitter, and I think I will. But the only reason I haven't yet, I haven't done this, I think, is because I want to see if Elon Musk takes it over. I want to see what happens. I don't trust Elon Musk either. I, I don't think he could possibly be worse than the current censorship regime that works at the behest of whatever factions that are controlling that want them to censor certain points of view. So I don't think he'd be worse, but I'd be wary of him too. But I, I'm just so curious to see how it goes. But I think pretty soon... I think Robert Malone's kind of right. Like this stuff isn't good. It's not good for you. Um, I have some great follows and great people that I interact with on the platform, but I'm still available online. My sites are known. If you listen to this podcast, you know where to find me. You can communicate with me. I get great feedback on this podcast, by the way. I get good emails all the time. And even the emails that I don't agree with or that disagree with me, 
They're always thoughtful. They're always respectful. What a, what a great medium of communication. It's actually, uh, it's been one of the really nice things about doing this is I've just heard from so many people, just interesting views and different views and reasons they listen and stuff. So I, I appreciate that. All right. A couple other things, you know, so last week I talked about how PayPal um, had that provision and I wanted to cancel PayPal. And then it came out a few days later that there was another provision that I didn't even mention, or I didn't even notice that apparently, and then they said it was an accident and they retracted it, that they would fine people $2,500 for wrong think, wrong speech. And there's a big movement to cancel PayPal. And, and I'm going to, I have to just, I have a tenant in LA who pays rent in PayPal and it's so convenient. And I got to just set up a new system with him, but I will, even if it costs me, like it was to wire a bank transfer and it costs 20 bucks, I'll just, I'll just eat that. It's worth it. But it's kind of lucky that PayPal did this because it's a, it's a good glimpse into the future. And we'll talk about the Kanye West thing also, which is that payment rails, corporations, you may rent an apartment from a large conglomerate, you know, BlackRock is buying up all this real estate. Maybe they're or actually someone who used to work at Blackstone told me he's Blackstone and BlackRock, Blackstone, whatever. One of those giant conglomerates is buying up a ton of real estate. And a lot of people rent uh, apartments from them. What if they say, oh, I saw what you said on Twitter. I'm sorry, your lease is up in three months. You better move because we're not renting to people who say what you say. It's, it's not just the banks. It's not just the payment rails, right? You could get Bitcoin, but it could be things like housing. It could be things like food, grocery stores. I mean, you know, they, they, they were like, if you don't take Pfizer's product, we're not going to let you into this restaurant. I mean, that was, a, that was a rule in a lot of places. So why couldn't they say, if you've said this wrong thing, you can't shop in this grocery store. This is where they're trying to push it because have it so that you can't transact, then they have a lot of control over you. It's very hard to resist that. You know, I can't buy groceries for my family. What am I going to do? Okay, I'll delete that post. I won't say this kind of stuff anymore. So this is the, the revelation. If you didn't have the mark of the beast, you couldn't transact. What does that mean? The mark of the beast, you can't transact. It means if you don't comply in some way, you can't transact. Are you going to go along with that? You know, are you going to arrange while you still can some alternative ways around that? So I was like, okay, I'm going to cancel PayPal, but you know, my credit card is a Chase credit card. Now I got to cancel Chase because they, they said to Kanye West after he made some anti-Semitic comments and they were anti-Semitic comments that they don't want him banking with them. I've heard this and I agree with this. I don't care what you think of Kanye West. He was a douchebag. He's a crazy person, whatever. That's fine. But this is speech and you don't have to agree with the speech. I don't agree with what he said at all. I'm Jewish. That's not that that makes a difference. I, I feel like I would disagree with it if he said it about Asian people or whatever. I don't really care. I just don't think you should be saying that kind of stuff about people. It's not nice. But do I think he should be kicked out of the banking system? Absolutely not. They should have no say over that because if you don't defend his right to say shit, that's even shit that you don't like that find distasteful, even worse, pernicious, then what somebody else finds pernicious is going to be a reason they kick you out of the banking system. It's speech. It should be protected. And so oh, it's a private company. It's not the U.S. government. You know, when you're talking about private companies that are the, the payment rails that interact with the U.S. government, when you're talking about grocery stores, which is the food supply, things like that, I think that is an infringement. It's a sort of workaround of the First Amendment. It's getting around the First Amendment. And I would defend his right to say that. And not to mention, as a Jewish person, I mean, how does this look? Okay, so Kanye says bad shit about Jews. Everyone knows Kanye's a bit crazy. No one's going to change their view on Jews because Kanye said so. But now the bank cuts him off. Oh, the banks shut him out because he said something bad about Jews. That's going to be way more likely to foment anti-Semitism than what Kanye said. Because now they're going to say, see, what he's saying is true. 
the banks turned against him because he said it about Jews. If they said it about white people, it wouldn't have happened. And it's true. If he said it about white people, it wouldn't happen. But if, if someone says something about black people, the banks would also shut them off. So it's not just Jews. It's blacks. It's anybody that you, know, you would get in a lot of trouble for saying something negative about. But you probably could get away still with saying something about white people and the banks wouldn't do that. But that doesn't really matter to me. What matters to me is, A, free speech is free speech, even if it's pernicious speech. And secondly, it's bad if you're Jewish because even though it doesn't prove a point and it's not why, as I said, if, if someone said it about black people, they would have shut off the is banking also it's not Kanye because he is black, but you know, a non-black person said something nasty about black people. The banks probably would shut them out too. But the perception is going to be, you see, they, they shut him out for saying something about Jewish people. And that is going to feed more anti-Semitism than anything Kanye said. So that's not ideal at all. And I, I think maybe that's the point though. You know, they, I think they want anti-Semitism. They want racism. They want people to be feuding. If people of uncommon ancestry made common cause, that's a big problem for the oligarchs, for the powerful factions that got us into this huge mess that we're in. That would be a huge problem. So they would love it if black people and Jewish people and white people and Asians all don't get along. They were all fighting each other and fighting about cultural issues because that deflects the attention from them. It's scary where things are going with this. Same time, it's a huge advertisement for Bitcoin. So the worse it gets, the better it gets, right? Like the more we now see that even in our Western economy, which was ostensibly working and you could use dollars and even though dollars inflated and you were always rushing to find the next stock or Bitcoin or real estate or something to put your money in because you couldn't just leave it in cash because you had to have a second job to invest your savings. Even if that were the case, the dollar or the euro worked pretty well. You could transact, people would take it for goods and services. It wasn't like a problem for you. It wasn't Zimbabwe or Argentina, places like that. And, and so it was easy for people in Zimbabwe or Argentina or Venezuela to say, oh, Bitcoin makes so much sense. I mean, thank God we have this. But in places like the US, a lot of people are like, we don't need this. We, we don't have a problem. But now that you see that you can be platformed for saying the wrong thing or believing the wrong thing, now you see how important it is to have a, a payment rail, a way of transacting value with people that's permissionless, that you don't need a third party to sign off on it. So on the one hand, they're asserting more control. On the other, they're driving people toward Bitcoin. And this is going to be an interesting race to see who gets there first. And we're in some very interesting times um, for a number of reasons. The other thing is, you know, the Fed keeps raising rates and it's crashing uh, stocks and markets, but it's really crushing currencies around the world. You know, the pound is in a crisis, the Japanese yen, the euro, everything's getting crushed right now. And... This is having an interesting effect as the Biden administration wants to try to fight inflation and keep gas prices down. And they've been using the strategic petroleum reserve called the strategic election reserve that, you know, it's supposed to be for emergencies and they're, 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 they're starting to release it to keep gas prices down to create more supply. And OPEC, I believe is going to have supply cuts. Now they're cutting supply also. And with this whole thing with the, the Nord Stream pipeline blown up in Russia, uh, delivering gas to Europe. And then Saudi Arabia was going to cut output and the U.S. tried to urge them to, to wait a month till after the election, basically to cut output. So gas prices don't go up because that's gas prices drive inflation and people can see prices at the pump. It's such a clear thing. It's just not like the price of milk, which some people notice and some people don't, or you just put it in your cart with 30 other items. I mean, you know, the price of gas, if you drive, which is a lot of people in the U.S. 
driving all the time. It's advertised in giant numbers at every gas station. If you see it's seven bucks or six fifty or whatever, you know, you know that you're paying that and it's taxing you and it's going to make you angry at the uh, incumbent politicians that are in charge. So they wanted Saudi Arabia to delay their output cut. And Saudi Arabia said no. And they said, we're not influenced by this. And it's interesting that Saudi Arabia is defying the administration because talked about this before, there's a, there's a relationship between the Saudis and the U.S. that basically got the Saudis off when they did 9-11. I mean, it's mostly Saudis who did it. Um, there's no real repercussions for that. And killed a journalist a few years ago. I mean, I think he was somewhat of an operative, but they just murdered the guy in cold blood. And there was no real repercussions for that. It's because Saudi Arabia is the reason that we have the petrodollar, the, that the dollar is the thing that they take for oil. You can't buy oil with euros. And that is a huge, huge advantage for the dollar. It means people need dollars to buy energy. They need energy, obviously. So they need to buy dollars. And if they need to buy dollars, that creates a demand for the dollar, which means that the dollar is stronger. Now, there's some negatives about having a strong dollar for our manufacturing base, which got shipped overseas. There's a lot of reasons that hurt us. It's a curse. It's a blessing and a curse. But now that we've done it, now that the manufacturing is mostly overseas, um, that strong dollar is very important. The dollar being the reserve currency is very important to the strength of the U.S. And I had read somewhere, I don't know if this is true, that the reason we really went into Iraq, or at least one of the main ones, is that Saddam was offering to take euros for oil. And the reason we killed Gaddafi after they had rehabbed Gaddafi, I don't know if you remember McCain and Gaddafi, I think he met with them in the mid-2000s. He was, he was like, oh, Gaddafi's our ally, or Gaddafi's our friend. And then they killed him, you know, five years later. And I, I heard this again, I, I'm not saying it's hundred percent true. You can fact check this, that he was trying to sell his oil for gold. So anything besides the dollar for oil gets you in trouble because it undermines the U S position. The petrodollar's position is the U as the world's reserve currency. And so Saudi Arabia is taking the U S dollar only for their oil. And in, in exchange, the U S gives them tons of weapons and protects them, you know, the despotic regime against its own people. And this has been a relationship that's been in place for a long time. But, and I told you, I heard this on a podcast that if for some reason, Saudi Arabia and the U.S., that relationship went sour and Saudi Arabia is like, well, I think, you know, a combination of Russia, Brazil, India, and China could protect us just as well. And we're going to also allow oil to be sold for a basket of those currencies then the dollar might crash like in half overnight because so much of its demand is just because you need, you need it to buy fuel. So other countries would just ditch a ton of their dollars. They already are. They're ditching a lot of their dollar bonds because they have to sell them to raise dollars to buy fuel and pay debts, dollar-denominated debts as their own currencies crash. So this is a big deal. You know, this is a big deal, the, uh, this sort of growing rift between them and Saudi Arabia. So there's that. And, that, and so I read another really interesting piece, basically arguing that the Fed is trying to raise rates, but they're not going to be able to without Saudi Arabia's cooperation. Because if they don't, if they cut output while the Fed raises rates, the Fed's going to be destroying markets and not even be taming inflation because oil will still be expensive. And oil is what drives inflation because getting food to market, getting goods and services moved around and created manufacturing at all, it's all fuel costs. I mean, it's a huge part of the input. So if you're cutting, if you're raising rates and damaging the economy at the same time, the Saudis are cutting output, then you have the worst of both worlds and it's going to force the Fed to cut. It's sort of like the, the Fed, like everything is subservient to the Fed, but the Fed is subservient to energy. 
So I just think it's a really interesting dynamic and kind of scary one as well. I don't have that much time. I actually get to run and go somewhere. It's one of the things I want to talk about, which is, and I talked about it last week. It's just so absurd that people think that caring about the average Ukrainian, caring about you know, Ukrainian citizens is even in the top hundred reasons why the U.S. is supporting this war against Russia. I don't know exactly what, why it is. I mean, I don't think they're really worried about Russia invading Europe. I just, I'm positive it's not because they care about Ukraine, what they're allowing to happen in Yemen and giving weapons to the Saudis to support what's happening in Yemen, what they did in Iraq. They don't care. They don't care about you. They don't care about me. And they sure as hell don't care about random average Joe Ukrainians. They don't care about them. That's not, that has nothing to do with it. So you see all these pundits saying we must risk nuclear war because we, we do it for the people of Ukraine. Like that is just, it, it's, it's not even bullshit. It's below, it doesn't even rise to the level of something that should be debated. It's just plainly, transparently, obviously not the case. The security state of the United States, these guys who play chess with human lives and, and people's interests around the world and geopolitical strategists who do that kind of thing, that they do not care about individual human beings. Okay. I'm sorry. It's just, a, it's just a fact. And anybody justifying it based on that is just, is just lying. I don't know. I don't really get why we're doing this really. I mean, there's obviously something at stake here. They maybe want to break Russia. There's geopolitical re reasons to overturn Putin. I don't know. I don't know what all the issues are, but I just assure you that it is not because they care about the people of Ukraine. So if you see people, pundits going on about that and lecturing about how, you know, it's Hitler again, and he's going to take, first of all, it's not Hitler. He's not going to take over the whole world. He's having trouble taking over Ukraine. And I find it really kind of remarkable that when we went into Iraq, we attacked a tiny country that had done nothing to us, done nothing to us. And we knew when we attacked them in 2003, that the entire world would either support us. Most of them just did it nominally. They didn't send a lot of troops. They weren't really enthusiastic about it, but most of the world would either support us or sit it out. That was pretty much it. Iraq would have no allies. Saddam Hussein would have no allies, nobody on his side. It would be us plus some partners. And, and the 2003 US is one of the most powerful countries in the history of the world. We have more competition now than we did then. We we're extremely powerful. Iraq was extremely weak. And we went in and we just eviscerated that country for no reason. Oh, they had WMDs. No, they didn't. By contrast, Russia invades Ukraine knowing full well that Ukraine is going to be backed by the US, by European allies knowing that much of the world would be against Russia for doing so and powerful countries in the world would be against Russia for doing so. So again, I don't know exactly why Putin did it. Was it the bio labs that were on his border? Was it the constantly encroaching NATO that was making him paranoid that the U S was going to do more? I don't know. I don't know what the reason was. Is he just a rapacious monster who just wants to kill Ukrainians and take their territory? Does he feel that all the old Soviet uh, republics belong to Russia? Could be. I don't know. I don't know what his motive is, but I do know that he obviously knew what he was up against when he did that and he still did it, which means it was very, very important to him. Why we did Iraq, we could do Iraq for any reason. We could have done it to enrich arms contracts. We could have done it because they were going to take euros for oil. We didn't need the greatest reason to go into Iraq because it was low risk. It ended up costing us $6 trillion. We killed a million people. We lost our own soldiers. We discredited our foreign policy. It was pretty costly, actually. They did the worst possible job of it. But in terms of immediate military success or failure, we knew we were going to win. We knew no one would help them. We knew it would be a layup. So it was probably, you didn't need as much of a compelling reason. We knew most people in the U.S. wouldn't really notice it once it was going on. It wasn't going to be a day-to-day -day thing. It wasn't going to change any 
most most citizens' day-to-day lives. Whereas in Russia, they've got to like conscript people now. They got to call people up. They've lost a lot of people. This war could go on for a long time. They're, they know they were getting sanctioned. They knew this would affect people's lives and this would be a big deal. Again, I don't know why they did it. I don't know why Putin did this, but I do know whatever the reason was, it had to be pretty compelling because he obviously knew everything that's happened so far. He knew that would be the result pretty much. Maybe he expected it to be easier. I don't know, but he definitely knew that most of the world would be against him and that this, you know, that Russia, that his you know, people would be seeking regime change and, and all of that. Maybe they already were seeking regime change. So maybe he had less to lose than, than it seems. But and I just thought that was noteworthy, that comparison between the two places. Finally, there's a big hearing where one of the Pfizer presidents or something admitted that none of the trials show that the vaccine stopped transmission. And that's been kind of a bombshell this week because, well, if they didn't even prove that it stopped transmission, why did they say it was 95%? Why did they mandate it? The whole house of cards starts to fall. And I see people just openly tweeting about this in a way that wasn't as possible, say, six months to a year ago. And then the, the Pfizer CEO tweets how they're recommending the FDA just approved the new bivalent booster for five to 11 year olds when there's never been any showing of benefit for that group that's not at risk. And then not only that, but this is the, the bivalent booster that's only been tested on mice. I mean, this is insane. And he's just tweeting this. And if you look at the comments on his tweet, it's like, you belong in jail, you scumbag, you're going to rot in hell. I mean, it's like, that's all the comments one after another. And I'm wondering, why is he tweeting that? Like, he doesn't have to tweet that. He could just launch it, recommend it, to, you know, get doctors to recommend it, whatever he has to do to market his, his product. But why is he tweeting about that? He knows the, the responses he's going to get. Very strange that he even has a Twitter account. I mean, if you're the CEO of Pfizer, I would not have a Twitter account. I think the uh, CEO of Moderna already deleted his. So this is pretty crazy that people are just going after these guys and uh, maybe there will be some accountability. I, I feel like there will be accountability long-term because, well, karma is real. If not in, you know, from other humans, from trials or Nuremberg style tribunals, certainly your own life will be extremely diminished if you engage in stuff like that. But people like me are not going to forget what happened. We're not going to forget vaccine mandates. We're not going to let this go. And there's a lot of people like that. So I think eventually there will be accountability, but, I, but I'm also wary of being duped into being like, yeah, here we go. We got him. Like all those people who thought, oh, the walls are closing in on Trump. We got him. Michael Cohen went to Prague. We got him. You know, oh, they, they found the classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. We got him. You know, all these people every, every week, they think they got him. They don't seem to learn. I, I don't want to be like that with accountability for this stuff because I feel like it seems like it's trending toward that. So my radar goes up. It's like, why is he tweeting that? You got to read the, you go to Albert Borla's account and, and you got to read the comments on that. It's just unbelievable. Anyway, that's mostly what I got. My Twitter feed at Chris underscore list has a lot of interesting stuff. I tweeted a couple threads, one on Ukraine by a guy named Miles Suter. And another guy, David Decosimo. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. David Decosimo. He talks about like <laughs> medical history of the 20th century and like all the horrible things that were done. And it's just good to like remind yourself that, you know, oh, the medicine, the doctors know is just so not, it's an ahistorical perspective. And so uh, that's worth, worth checking out. I think that's about it. I've also, just a reminder on chrislist.com. It's the only place I have it, chrislist.com. I've been putting a bunch of uncensored tweets. I enjoy doing those. I don't always put them on Twitter. So check out the uh, uncensored tweets tab on chrislist.com. Oh, one last thing that uh, I'm working on that I'm 
kind of feel it might turn out good. It's hard when you, uh, when you're writing to know if, if these things will end up getting scrapped. But the premise that it opens with is that there's one weapon you don't want your adversary to have. There is one weapon that is so terrifying that if your adversary has it, you are toast. No, it's not nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons can be deterred with other nuclear weapons. They can be shot down if you have some sort of uh, system set up to shoot them down. They're not good if your adversary has them, but they're not the worst weapon. The worst weapon your adversary could have is a time machine. Because not only could he go back in time and invent all the weapons you have and somehow derail all the weapons that you invented, but he could also just stop your parents from meeting. I mean, he could change history. So if your adversary has a time machine, you are fucked. You are totally fucked. He can go back. I mean, he can go back. He gets the jump on you even before you're born. You can never get the jump on him if he has a time machine. Now, luckily, physics guarantees that a time machine is impossible because to travel in time, you'd have to go faster than the speed of light. And as an object with any mass approaches the speed of light, it starts to take on infinite mass and therefore would need infinite energy to get it to the speed of light, let alone beyond the speed of light. Because energy is finite, it is therefore impossible to accelerate anything with mass to the speed of light and certainly beyond the speed of light. And because you would need to travel beyond the speed of light to travel in time, you cannot travel in time. So there is this difficulty adjustment in physics that makes it impossible to travel in time and your adversary can never have the ultimate weapon against you. He can never have a time machine. But unfortunately, in the digital realm, that's not the case. Somebody could change the digital ledger of who owes what to whom, which is what the monetary system is. Who owes what to whom, who worked for what, what agreements were made in the past, that can be changed. They can essentially go back in time and rearrange that. And they can do it in a way that you might not notice. They could print a lot of money. They could print money, inflate the currency, and that $100,000 that you worked for suddenly has $50,000 worth of purchasing power. They have rearranged the ledger, rearranged the value that you stored from your labor. They have gone back and they said, oh, you thought you did that much work? No, actually, I've rearranged the timeline, so you've only done half that much work. Essentially, they basically made your work worth half or worth 75%, or they could be worth 10%. They inflated enough. They can essentially change the record of events of what happened digitally, which is not possible in the real world due to physics. Your enemy, the people in power, have a time machine. And the beauty of Bitcoin, and so I'm going to write about this, is the difficulty adjustment. You can't just put you know, all of Saudi Arabia's energy into it and mine all the Bitcoin because the more energy that goes into it, the harder it is to guess the number that you need to mine the next block. So if you put all the energy in the world to mining the next block and say, I'm going to mine all the rest of it, instead of one in a quintillion guess, it'd be one in a Google. And all the energy in the world would only get you one block every 10 minutes, just the same pace it's been since its inception. And so there's a guy, Dergigi, who writes about this. And he says, Bitcoin is a clock. He says, Bitcoin is time. And what happens is a ledger that's not alterable, that makes it impossible for anybody to dilute you, but make more of them than there are. And as a result, your adversaries no longer have this weapon against you. So... This is the ultimate self-defense. It basically takes away your adversary's greatest weapon, which is the time machine, the ability to go in and alter the digital reality. In real life, it's not possible. 
physics makes it impossible, but on digital ledgers, it's obviously quite possible to alter the events and what happens. So I'm working on that, trying to tie it together in a coherent way. Hopefully that will be out this week or next. All right. That's all I got for now. Till next time.